from the Gospel of Matthew. You can follow along on the screen or simply just, you know, close your eyes and hear these words. The Gospel of Jesus according to Matthew, verse 21, chapter 16. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their souls? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Father, we thank you and we praise you that you've come to meet us here in this space and that you are willing to, uh, yeah, just to see fit to have a moment um, in the history of your church and of your people and of your creation to uh, give to us this gift where we gather together with fellow believers uh, to be reminded of all that it is that you long for us to know and to experience in this life where we can recenter, restory ourselves to your gospel and to your kingdom. And so we just ask and pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do as you promised, that you would be present here among us, that you would allow us to experience uh, yeah, that presence in a tangible kind of way, and that we would be encouraged and equipped, and that we would be able to celebrate this morning as we recognize the great joys of the gospel and the hope of the kingdom. We love you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so... This section, kind of out of nowhere, we haven't been in Matthew. Uh, this is a lectionary passage, as I said, and so it kinda, we're kind of being dropped in it after we've come out of our series in Deuteronomy. And it helps, as always, to have a little bit of context of what's going on, especially in a passage like this, where it says, from that time on, which should immediately beg the question, what time on are you speaking of, Matthew? And then, you know, you guys know this. You know how to read. You know how stories work. So the context of this is interesting because it, it, it matters to what you see take place here with Peter few verses right before this, Peter is talking with Jesus and the disciples and everybody's up in the room and Jesus is like, well, who do you say I am? Who do you think I am? And Peter, speaking on behalf of the disciples, declares that you're the Christ, the Messiah. And this is a, a, a pivotal moment in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, 16 to 20, these next four chapters are going to be this moment where Jesus' audience in Matthew, is going to become the disciples, primarily, and almost exclusively. For four chapters, he's going to talk directly to them, and he's going to explain things to them, and he's going to open up their eyes and their mind to things that he has not yet given to them. Up until this point in the, the Gospel of Matthew, you rarely see Jesus and the word Messiah or Christ connected to each other. 
This has kind of been something that has been held off in his narrative. This more this teaching, this rabbi, this way that they interact with Jesus has been different up until this point. And now the disciples have declared it. And in the Gospel of Matthew, they're going to say, you are the Messiah. This is pre-transfiguration. That's going to happen next chapter. And so the disciples have kind of got it. They've grasped into the thing that we all know as readers on the other side. We know it's Jesus Christ. The Christ, the Messiah. We're aware of this. And we're like, okay, finally, they're naming it. You know, they've got it. And so from then on, Jesus, in these next four chapters, is going to look at them and his teaching is going to consist of helping them understand what exactly that means. Because here's the reality of it. This is going to happen, and then from 20 until the end of the Gospel of Matthew is going to basically be the passion narrative. And so Jesus is trying to help them to understand, yes, you are right, I am the Messiah. And now that they know this, now that they're acquainted with this truth and they're able to proclaim it and they're able to name it, he says, okay, you're ready to like, receive the next part of what this means. To, to reorient your mind around what it is that I am the Messiah. And so he starts right here, immediately after their proclamation that Jesus is the Christ, of helping them to understand what it means that he is the Christ. And that is primarily for Matthew going to be that he is the suffering Christ. Or the suffering Messiah. He's going to use the language of the Psalms. He's going to use a whole lot of language from Isaiah and Jeremiah in these next four chapters. To get his disciples to wrestle with and to grapple with. That he is not just the Messiah in the way that they understand it or know it. But that he is the Messiah as God intended him to be. The suffering servant. The humble Messiah. Because you see, they had a whole lot of political notions and ideas of what the Messiah was supposed to be. For hundreds and hundreds of years, in context with the Old Testament, they've been longing and waiting for the Messiah to come to overthrow Rome because the oppression of Rome was real. If you've studied history at all, you know that Rome was not great, and neither were the empires that ruled over Israel the years prior to Rome. There was oppression, there was injustice. In Jerusalem, and Israel, they were supposed to be this nation that was prominent, that was so powerful, and that things were so favorable for them that others outside of that would come and would know who Yahweh was. This wasn't a vain or selfish ambition on the disciples and many of the Hebrew people. They weren't like just like, oh man, we need to be the most powerful because that's like, you know, you got to be number one. They wanted this because... This is what the Old Testament had promised. This was the story of God's people. They were supposed to conquer the land and become an indwelling, a place where streams and rivers flowed towards them with people in order that they might know and be acquainted with and become a part of Yahweh's plan for them. And so they were like, yes, 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 you're the Messiah. And so in their minds, they're like, the, the time is now. The time has come. Let us go, take Jerusalem, overthrow the evil rulers. And so Jesus is like, okay, you're going to have to understand what this means. Because the people that Jesus had come for, the establishment, the higher-ups, those that were in power and in charge, they were not going to accept the suffering Messiah. And so Jesus not only needed to redefine what it meant that he was the Christ, but he also was going to have to create then a new people 
outside of this original covenant group of people called the Israelites in order for his vision and his hope of what it meant for him to be the Messiah and the subsequent realities that would come to take place, to take root. We stand here as that new people, the new covenant, the church of Jesus Christ, a result of his different way of doing things, his re-understanding. And so he's going to create for them a new way of existing and of being in a new community. And he has to do that by creating, or the, the way he does that is by creating a way for that to be possible. So not only is he creating a new community, but he's also creating the way for that community to exist and to function and to operate. And he's doing all of this by fulfilling the promises and the prophecies of the Messiah that are all throughout the Old Testament. So he is the Christ. And so he establishes that. And then the first thing he says to them, all of these political notions and ideas, all of these ideas of victory and of conquest that we struggled with and wrestled with in Deuteronomy, these are baked into the disciples, people that love Jesus and have been spending years with him, good, faithful Jewish people, Hebrew people. And he says, they say, you are the Christ. And he says, you're right. And from now on, I'm going to spend the rest of my time teaching you what that means. And I'm going to start with the fact that that means that I must go. It is, it is imperative, it is necessary that I go to Jerusalem and be executed. And so obviously, Peter, who has just been promised to be, or, or is about to be promised to be the rock in which the church is built upon, the one that is just declared on the lips, you know, that this is the Messiah, the one that gets it, that sees that what no one else can see, the one that is in tune with the Spirit in a kind of way that allows him to have a, a vision of forward of Jesus being more than just a teacher and a rabbi. And he looks at him and says, okay, I'm the one that's going to go die. This is the way it has to go down. This is what it means that I am the Christ. This is what it means that I am the Messiah, that I will suffer at the hands of those in charge, that I will become a political and religious criminal and I'll be killed now obviously he, he tags on Matthew does and I don't know how fast that happened in live conversation with Peter and the disciples but he says and then I'll be raised in three days but you and I both know that once you hear bad news or surprising news or even shocking news whatever it is like a lot of times what you you don't hear what comes next I can still remember uh, proposing to Anna getting down on one knee and being like, I'd go through my whole spiel that I'd practice. She remembers none of it, right? Like, it's all gone. She doesn't even say yes. She just grabs me. And I'm like, well, are you going to say yes? Like, that's kind of part of the whole thing. And she was like, oh, my gosh, yeah, 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 yes, yes, yes. Okay? So, like, once you go into that moment, if you've ever tried to have a conversation with someone that is completely deregulated, you know, like screaming, would you just calm down? Does no good. It's not going to calm them down. They can't do that. This is the same thing. They have heard something that has completely rocked their world and shocked them. And so they have paid no attention to Jesus promising that there is still hope in the midst of it, right? There's a humanness that is involved here. And so Peter, being Peter, sweet Peter, the more I study and the more I sit with scripture and I sit with myself, I'm just like, gosh, dang it, you know, like I am, this is, oh man, Peter, you and me, buddy, and we are pals. Uh, he's just declared this thing, that Jesus will be the Messiah, He's announced it, and Jesus has given him all these promises. Peter's the leader of the disciples in a lot of ways. 
and then he immediately does something that's just not great. And he jumps up and he's like, I, I can only imagine. Let's have some holy conjecture here with me for a moment. I, I can only imagine in this moment. Because if it were me, and like I said, I, there's a lot of relationship here with Peter. That uh, if someone bestowed on me some leadership qualities uh, as a young person, um, and they said to me, like, hey, you're, you're going to lead this group of people. The first chance that I got to sort of prove my chops, I would have jumped right in there head first. If you can relate to me, uh, then you're like, yeah, I know what exactly what you're talking about. If you're the type of person that would rather be the vice president and sit in the background, you're like, why would you want to? Like, that's anyway. So Peter, he's like, okay, I'm going to prove myself. I'm, I'm the leader. I'm the person. I just named it. Did you guys just see how smart I was? Like, I got it. I'm the one that gets it. Watch this. And I can only imagine that in some caring and deep down way, like this is not, I don't think it's misguided here. He's pastorally, he's like, hey, Jesus, let's sidebar here for a second. This thing you're saying, like, you've kind of named me the next, you know, heir apparent. So, like, let me tell you something. And he's just wrong. He's wrong, completely wrong. And Jesus tells him so in a very intense and direct kind of way that's not really funny that many of us probably are kind of like, what's happening here? What Peter says to him is, is listen, Jesus, there's no way this can happen to you. This, this can't be. In fact, he goes to say that there's a word in our NIV translation that didn't uh, get translated. That What he's actually saying to him is that God's too merciful to you. He's too gracious. He's too kind for this to be the way that it has to happen to you. For this to be what, what is your, like, th th no, you, you've got to be wrong here. And he immediately tries to kind of like, you know, move himself up into that equality with Jesus of like, no, 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 I, I can help you here. Let me help you understand. Let me show you the way. And if you've ever explained something to someone, a 13-year-old boy or something, you know, like, or even older, and, and you're like, I, I kind of have an area of expertise, and they immediately, yeah, 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 I know what you're talking about. And you're like, no, you don't. You have no idea, but that's really sweet. This is Jesus with Peter in this moment. But he's much harsher about it, and he's direct. Because what he understands is that we're not playing uh, some moralistic game here, or just, it, it's not about mental ascent. That there is life and death on the line in this moment. That, that there is something real about the way the kingdom is supposed to begin to manifest itself amongst creation that Jesus doesn't want to miss here. And so he's very direct. So Peter looks at him and he says, God's too favorable. There's too much blessing involved. There's too much grace involved. We know the character of God. May he be gracious. May he make his face to shine upon you. May he protect you and keep you. You are this, Jesus. The Messiah can't die. The Messiah is meant to bring abundance to the people of God. The Messiah is meant to be the one that ends suffering, not endures suffering. The Messiah is the one that's meant to bring hope and joy, not death and destruction. Like, this, you, you have to have it wrong. Like, this cannot be right. There's no way. There's no possibility that you are correct about this. So I didn't want to embarrass you in front of the other guys, you know. So I, and Jesus, very publicly, the, the word for he turns, he spins around, you know, dramatic. And he says, get behind me, Satan. He corrects Peter in an intense kind of way because Peter's wrong. Now, I think that one of the things we can learn here in this verse with Peter it's not just that uh, everybody kind of makes mistakes and that Peter's kind of this bumbling, you know, eager, just talks way too much. 
But I think a good human lesson that all of Scripture would be helpful for us to see and to understand and know that we can take away from this is this idea that oftentimes in our humanity, part of the human condition is that we are not just wrong in our worst moments. That we're not just wrong when we're like, you know, off on the deep end. That the real challenge of the human condition and one of the difficult parts of it and why it takes so much work to understand and to know yourself is that oftentimes you can be the most wrong when you are trying your best. And that there's this danger in it. I think this is why Jesus is so quick to correct Peter in this moment. Because here's the thing, is Jesus recognizes you've declared that I'm the Messiah. You've named it correctly and rightly. But what you have brought with that is you have imported all of your kind of human understandings of what the Messiah is supposed to be. All of your political understandings. You've brought with that this other way of thinking and being and existing that I'm here to change. And so he's saying, yes, you're right. But you're going to have to let go of some things. And you're going to have to trust me that this is going to look different. That this is going to function in a different kind of way than, than you can really grasp or imagine. This is kind of turning everything right side up. It's like Peter and the disciples for some time had been sort of operating by looking in a mirror. If you've ever done the weather forecast thing, you know, or try to do a reverse green screen, you understand that it takes some time learning to kind of move in the right directions, that right is no longer right and left is no longer left. And I think what Jesus is saying is that for a long time, you guys have been operating that way. By looking into this mirror. And, and what you've learned and come to know as right is not actually right. And what you've come to know as left is not actually left. And what I'm offering you in this moment is, is a possibility to turn you around and to realize that the world doesn't exist in that reflection. That the world exists in front of me. And what I'm inviting you to is to come and to get behind me. And to allow me to define for you what is right and what is good. This should sound a lot like Genesis 1, 2, and 3 to you. The, there is an opportunity in, in a place where God is saying to us, if you will just listen to how I define what is right and what is good, what is evil and what is death, if you will understand that and you give yourself to that, then your life will be bountiful and abundant and infinite and joyous. But Peter is an example here of this moment that even in his good intentions and in his best, he is doing this thing in which he is operating on human understandings. And this is what Jesus is going to say to him. He's saying, you don't have God's concerns in mind. And what he's really saying is you don't have God's uh, definition of what is good and what is right. And you don't have God's foresight. You don't have his uh, understanding of the world and the way it works. You are the created and you are trying to tell the creator how life is supposed to function. And he's saying, no, 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 you, you have to let God define it. You have to submit yourself to this. You have to trust and place yourself behind me. This get behind me, Satan, that he says to Peter. It is interesting that it, it is not a get away from me. It is not a get out of here. It is actually a call to come close. It, it is actually a way of him looking at him and saying, no, 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 no. You've misunderstood, but I'm not rejecting you. I'm not casting you out. I'm not telling you to be gone. I'm telling you to come and to get behind me, to follow me. Because then he's going to go into the next two verses and he's going to say, and anyone else that wants to get behind me, his anger or his frustration with Peter is, is momentary. 
Because Peter was right, right? God is gracious. He is forgiving. He is kind. And so Jesus displays this. He's going to correct. He's going to adjust. And then he's immediately going to display the gracious character of who God is by saying, come, 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 come. Just, just get back in line. And this is a way of things being ordered rightly. This is creation as it's meant to be in the orders, inside the bounds that we have been placed in as human beings. Understanding and letting God define those moments and saying, I will stay inside those bounds that you have placed for me because I understand and know through the story of the people of God that those bounds and those lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. And I will stay. And I will allow myself to be your disciple. Jesus is just saying, you've just tried to get out of order. You've tried to be leading out front. And I need you, if you want to be my disciple, I need you to come and get behind me. And to follow me. And to let me take you somewhere. And he's going to say, anyone that wants to follow me can. And it's an invitation to discipleship with Jesus. And saying, you can come and you can follow me. You just, you just get, get in line, get behind me, and then you can go. But then he drops like the biggest paradox, catch-22 of the gospel that we all are familiar with. And we have sort of trivialized this, we've moralized it, we've uh, cliched it, that to find life you have to lose it. You know, if you try to gain life, if you try to preserve it, if you try to save it, you're going to end up losing it. And it's this upside-down, confusing way of thinking. And I think that we've become so familiar with it that we just sort of go, oh, yeah, 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 that's the gospel, and we move on. Of course that's the way it is. Like, yeah, yeah you've got to suffer, you've got to whatever it is. You've got to pick up your cross. And there's all sorts of ways in which we try to define what it means to pick up our cross. But if you stop and you kind of sit in this with the context of where Peter just was and what he's saying to him, and you look at verses 24 through 26, and you begin to kind of see them as like this distilled summary of the Sermon on the Mount a few chapters earlier in Matthew. That what he's calling them to is a way of living and existing, not just professing and confessing that Jesus is the Christ. That is part of it. That there is a naming of it. We do have to actually say these things from time to time. We'd be arrogant to think that we could live our lives so perfectly and wholly that all we have to do is just exist and that everyone will figure out who Jesus is. Like, we do have to name these things. And there's a way in which you are not going to live your life in accordance with who Jesus is if you do not name him as such and commit to being his disciple. But he's saying you also have to live it. You have to functionally, actually, you know, allow this to change the way you exist and eat and work and are a spouse and a parent and a sibling and a friend and a student. And when you do this, when, when you allow yourself to be changed by this, you will see that there's a way in which the things that you think that you need to pursue and that you think that you should be going after, they lack an eternal and infinite characteristic. And that actually what you're doing is you're grabbing at finite things, hoping to hold on to aspects of life that are simply going to rot, that are going to be eaten up by mothballs. I think it's easy to think of these moments as like, oh, well, yeah, like money, houses, cars, material possessions. Like, sure, those are all going to go away. But this, I think the gospel is inviting us to think about so much more. Things that we often, again, in our best intentions, 
with the good in mind, with, with religious and Christian language and defense and Bible verses that we can use to back up how we live our lives. Oftentimes the things that we think like legacy and taking care of our children and providing the best for them, being you know, really generous and tricking ourselves into thinking that that's why we're pursuing that job that pays more because like, then I can give more away and import it into that, kind of uh, piggybacking off of our good intentions are a whole lot of self-preservation and human ideas and understandings of what the good life is. And, and there's a way in which we hold on to fear and we do not allow ourselves to be given fully over to what God is trying to define for us as the good life. We hold on to our own definition of good and evil and what the good life is meant to be. And we just sort of put a little bit of, you know, paint on it. We repackage it. We take the American dream of wellness and wholeness and ease that we're all supposed to experience and we just sort of, you know, put some spiritual language on it and we, we make it sound really good. And we think, well, I'm just taking care of myself because that's what I'm supposed to do. And we call it Sabbath. I love Sabbath. I practice it regularly. But that's not what we're getting after here, right? And this is what he's saying. Because, look, cause here's what Peter does. is Peter imports with his good intentions probably a whole lot of fear. If you've just been named the leader of this movement, and then you say Jesus is going to die. I mean, Peter maybe wasn't this selfish. Maybe he was. But he's thinking, like, I'm about to rule. Like, and not in like this 90 surfer kind of way, like in a very real, like I'm going to rule and I'm going to have power and authority and we are going to see this. Because you have to understand these disciples, they come from a place of poverty. They come from a place of rejection. They come from a place of knowing what it means to have the burden of taxes levied on them again and again unfairly and unjustly. They know what it means to be outcast by your own people because you didn't know the right answers to the right questions. And he is saying, it is about time that Isaiah's prophecies have come true. That the burden will be easy and the yoke will be light and that there will be chains loosened. And that the unjust will find justice. And he's excited about it. And there is deep fear and hesitation when he hears Jesus say these words. There's a hesitancy that is rightfully in him that I think that he's probably subconsciously not even aware of, you know. Or consciously aware of it, and it's all happening subconsciously. That it just, he's like, no, 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 this can't be it. And Jesus is going to look at him and he is going to say, Yes, this is. Follow me. He looks at him and calls him the Satan, right? The deceiver. It's a verse that, I don't know, it always made me uncomfortable as a kid. Like, how could Jesus call one of his disciples and a follower Satan? How could it be something that extreme? And there's people that are like, oh, he's not really talking to Peter. He's talking to Satan that's acting, you know, using Peter in the moment. I, yes, but I think he's calling Peter Satan here because the rest of the verse is directed towards Peter. But there's a grace in which he does it, right? And there's an honesty. And I think that's the profundity of who Jesus is in the economy of the gospel, is that in that truth and in that honesty of what's happening there, the love and the grace of Jesus is even more on display. That drawing near, that coming in. And he's, I think Jesus looks at him and Jesus says, this is the same tricks, the same temptations that I experienced in the wilderness. All this is is a bunch of leftovers heated back up and reserved. 
This is just Satan using my friends, the people near to me, to try to take my eye just three degrees off the goal. The shadow of the calling, the shadow of the blessing. Jesus knows the direction he is meant to live and what God has called him to. And all Satan wants to get him to do is just to move just a touch, just a little to the right or to the left, and he would succeed. And he does this through Peter's good intentions. I think Jesus is naming the evil when he sees it. And he's saying, no, 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 I'm not going to listen to this. I'm going to allow what God has called and destined for me. Because that language that I must go and do this, it's apocalyptic language of saying this is like God's divine will. This is the way in which it has to be, that a way must be made through Jesus. And he's saying, I will not waver from it. And you cannot either. And if you want to follow me, this is to be your life. One that submits to the suffering. That's willing to bear their cross. And here's the reality of it. We don't get to choose what that cross is. Oftentimes that cross might very well be the thing that Peter is going to have to bear, which is a re-understanding and a reorienting of what it means to follow the Messiah. It'd be really nice if we could pick it and be like, oh, this is my suffering. I can't have, you know, my favorite coffee drink a few times a week because I will give more money to the poor bearing my cross for Jesus. The gospel comes to us and it finds us where we are and it asks everything of us. And you don't get to choose what it asks of you. You don't get to choose what you give up and what you decide is suffering and cross bearing. But the gospel will look you dead in the eyes and say that your whole life is forfeit. Bonhoeffer will say that the gospel and this is what Jesus is saying you must come and you must understand that there will be things in life that you want to pursue and that seem to make good sense that you are not allowed to pursue and in this community in this group of people as we begin to figure out what it means to follow Jesus in this right side up kind of manner we too must embrace this this understanding of what it is that we would follow Jesus. Jesus ends uh, his little section, our, our last verse in our passage was this call that there would be some there in that space, right? Because the Son of Man is going to come with angels and he's going to find people and they're going to be paid out to what their deeds are. A reference back to the necessity and the importance that we would do more than just confess with our lips, but that our lives would be lived in such a manner that are in line with who Jesus is. And he says, some of you won't even taste death before the Son of Man comes in his kingdom. And this has puzzled people for a long time. And we've tried to understand, and scholars have about nine different, like, kind of regular theories of what exactly this might be. And if you've been around me for any time, you're going to guess correctly that I'm going to suggest to you that we sort of take bits and pieces of all nine and have a good understanding of what's happening here. But in Christ's death and his resurrection, I think Matthew, Mark, the gospel writers, they probably thought that they were going to get to see it. When Paul says that he thinks he's going to see Jesus return, I think he really hopes and believes that he'll see Jesus return in the real kind of way that we confessed twice this Sunday morning, that Jesus will come again to judge living in the dead and his kingdom will have no end. Whatever that means, however we understand that. I think we have to leave space for some mystery in all of this and that we don't need simple answers to complex questions. And when somebody does have simple answers to complex questions, you should be very leery of what kind of information they're espousing. 
I think we, we should leave some openness to this, but I think we can also say that in that too, that it is true that some of that has been answered in his death, burial, and resurrection. That some of that has been answered in his great commission to the disciples. That some of those in that room, they saw that happen. They saw that take place. They saw Jesus step into his kingdom and come to them in the power and the hope of the kingdom and release them into ministry. They saw that happen when he ascended into heaven. And it is this in his kingdom going to God as much as it is him coming down to us. That he sits there at the right hand of the Father in power and authority, ruling and reigning. And we now today get to be in that kingdom and experience the living Jesus. Because we are following a living being. Not just his teachings. We do not just follow Jesus' good teachings that are helpful and wise. We follow Jesus, the living God, ruler and reigner over this earth and all of its creation and universe that it exists within. And that this God sits at the right hand of the Father and we see and experience that kingdom by seeing and experiencing one another and places and places and allowing the Holy Spirit to meet with us here and overwhelm us again and again with his presence. I think Jesus is making this promise that some of you in that room, in that room that day, they experienced that. They saw it. They experienced the Holy Spirit coming and empowering them and, and gifting them with things that they did not possess previously. And we would do well to embrace that that is available for us today. This power and this authority that the kingdom of God is available to us today to participate in. And yet we know and hold out and confess sometimes twice in one Sunday that we also believe that the kingdom will come again in a different kind of way. And that there is this second coming. And that there's a tension between the two and we hold out onto it. And in the meantime, we are meant to live right side up, looking into life as it was supposed to be, as Jesus made clear for us and paved in front of us. And we are meant to get in line and follow him. And we are meant to be that new community that does so with one another. And it's difficult and it's hard. And yet it's joyous and exciting. When I was reading this, I was thinking about different analogies of what it means that oh, you would die and then you get your life back. And I couldn't help but think of a good friend of mine I was talking to, older, getting closer to 30. So in the South, he's like ancient by the fact that he's not married yet. He's a believer, so it makes him double ancient that he's not married yet. He's asking a lot of questions and he's wrestling with it. And he's like, you know, what, what does it mean that I'm still single? And he's like, dude, it's hard. And he's like, and if one more person tells me, well, what you got to do is just be comfortable with who you are, and then you'll find the perfect person. He was like, I'm going to punch him. And I was like, and you should, because that's just not good advice. It's like me telling you, don't think about polar bears. And every single one of you just thought about polar bears right now. It's impossible. You shoot free throws, and you're like, don't think about my form. And then you start thinking about your form, and it's all jacked up, okay? You can't do this. But this isn't what Jesus is talking about. You're thinking about what you're doing, and he wants you to, and he's inviting you into something that seems paradoxical, and it is paradoxical to us, and it's meant to be paradoxical. It's meant to be confounding. And yet, as you embrace it, you will experience what Jesus promises, but it requires trust. It requires faith. It requires a moment where you may not see the results for 10, 15, 20 years. And yet you believe that what you're doing is giving yourself to God and you're placing yourself behind him and you are encountering all sorts of things along the way where you have to let go of your definitions of what it means that Jesus is the Christ and your Messiah. We do the exact same thing. We are no different than Peter. 
We, like Peter, can confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and be the rock by which the church is able to be built upon, and simultaneously we can be a stumbling block by allowing evil and our human concerns to conflict within us. This happens. We're both the same. If I were in the garden, I would have taken that fruit and I would have taken it probably more quickly than they did. If I'm honest about who I am, if I'm willing to be open and accept the realities of what it means that the human condition does not skip certain people or generations, we should not be arrogant enough to think that we are void of it. We are no different than Peter and the disciples. We too are a mixed bag full of all these different emotions and ideas and we get caught up in our feelings and what the beauty of the gospel is is that Jesus knew that would happen and he looked at you and he looked at me and he said I'll do it anyways and I'll let you come back 70 times 7 and even more so when he looked at Peter and Peter did what he did he knew that Peter was going to do worse yet and yet he still made promises of hope and of joy over him he still promised that the church would be built and that he would be the rock by which it would be built upon. Failure after failure resulted in promise after promise. This is the gospel. This is what we are supposed to be. And here's what I think is problematic. I am the guiltiest and chief among the sinners in this regard. I think that what we have done, and I'm borrowing from a man named Walter Brueggemann here, is that I think we have given ourselves over to being the people of God and being complacent in this idea of being involved in a conspiracy of niceties. Because this is what I think happens, is that I think self-deception is contagious. And it's empowering. And the person you will lie to the most is yourself. And so when someone else lies about who they are, you are going to slowly correct them because you do not want them to tell you that you are lying about who you are. And we totally miss the fact that we are no different than Peter, that we are no different than Adam and Eve choosing to sin, that we are no different than the wandering Israelites, that we are prone to losing focus, and that we are prone to taking the easy way out, that we are prone to avoid what God has called us to, that we are prone to defining for ourselves what is good and evil, that we are prone to taking our own definitions and understandings of what we think Jesus should be and saying, I will follow you, Jesus but only if you are the Jesus and the Messiah that I want you to be. Only if you play by my rules. So don't be bringing any of that stuff in that will actually ask something of me. Don't ask me to actually like examine or like take stock of what my life is. And we lie to ourselves and to one another over and over again. And this is Brueggemann's word. He says, we live by a covenant. It says, I promise never to tell the truth about you if you promise to never tell the truth about me. And what we see that is mind-blowing about this interaction with Peter is that Jesus looks at him. And we in our 21st century minds in Birmingham, Alabama, in the year of our Lord, 2023, we cannot imagine someone looking at you because you were trying to do something good and them saying, get behind me, Satan. You'd be like, who do you think you are? We would be offended. We would take great offense. And yet the gospel is saying that this is actual kindness, to be honest and to be truthful about who we are. And all the difficulties and strugglings that we've had in the recent years with the church, 
and in the world around us to name things like the Me Too movement and social injustice as we should, to name the problems that have existed in the church as we should. The gift and the beauty of the gospel is that it has a narrative that says, of course, and you're no different. Don't kid yourself. Leave the hubris at the door. You are the same. You would have bowed down to Baal just as fast as the Hebrews did. And you would have been confused and God would have been just as gracious to you as he was to them and he'll continue to be gracious. We must reckon and be honest with ourselves. Stand before the Lord and allow him to convict and to consecrate our lives towards the service of his good works and his will of the kingdom. And we must do so with one another. We must call each other forward into more of what Jesus would have for us. We must give up our lives and our ideas of what we think the church is meant to be and supposed to be and submit ourselves to Jesus again and again. It's why we come back to these moments over and over, week in and week out, is to submit ourselves, to ground ourselves, to center and story ourselves around the hope of the gospel and the way of Jesus and to get back in line because you have to do it over over and over again. It's a must. And that's the invitation at the table. As you come to take communion, and the band comes back up, and they're going to play two more songs. And I'll invite you to come and take a piece of the bread and the cup, hold on to those elements, go back to your seats and continue to hold them. And we'll receive together of one body and one cup as I lead us in the reception of those elements. And you come and you take this body, and you take this cup, and you are reminded that the real beauty of this is that Jesus is completely honest about who you are. He is more honest about who you are than you are. He's more aware of your failings and your shortcomings than you ever could be. He's more able to see all of the ways in which you fail to live up to the thing that you're trying to live up to. He, he sees your pains and your hurts. Things that you think are normal things that were a part of your childhood, your life, the sufferings that you encountered, the struggles that you have, the doubts that keep you up at night, the anxiety that causes you to be unable to eat. He sees it all. And he knows it better than you do. And he longs and he weeps and he cries for you more than you cry for yourself. And all your pain and your suffering, your misgivings, your shortcomings, misgivings and shortcomings, there we go. He sees it. He's honest about who you are. And he invites you yet still to come and to be a part of his life and to experience it and to follow him and to receive the joy and the hope of the kingdom. You do not have to hide yourself from him. You do not have to cover up the parts that you are embarrassed by when you come to the table. You can hear the rebuke. You can hear the no that is followed by a truer and greater yes from God that is a welcoming and open invitation to participate in his life and his kingdom. So as you come to the table, you come to Jesus, and you long and you desire here in this moment, any who would long and desire to follow Jesus and to be behind him, come and receive the gifts of God for the people of God. Amen.